from Anchor FM, this is Etch the Edges, where we climb the steep cliffs of the divide, the issues that separate us from the right and the left, and we do the hard work of closing that divide. Find the common ground we know we all share. Hi, I'm B.S. Brown, your host, and together we will etch the edges. America has often been at the crossroads, and yet here we are again. What do we do? And how do we do it? Together, let's get into it. Our purpose? To do the work. To truly peel away at the extremes, for it's the extremes, the extremes that divide us. The tail is wagging the dog. Small groups of people with outsized voices are commanding the stage, and the rest of us? Well, the rest of us suffer for it. It's time for all that to change. Let's lean into discomfort. Let's have the hard conversations, and together, let's etch the edges. Welcome back to Edge the Edges, another episode of Edging the Edges to get to the truth of the matter and find a common understanding that we can all digest in order to make better decisions for ourselves, our families, our communities. Today's guest is Mr. Wade Anthony, who is running for the Cula mayor in the upcoming municipal elections. Wade, welcome. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for um, inviting me, Mr. Brown. I'm so glad to be here. Absolutely, well, we're glad to have you. And like we say on Edge the Edges, we lean into discomfort, we have the hard conversations, the kind of conversations you may care to have, and to the point, so that we can get a common understanding about decisions we need to make. For this interview, it's about letting the folks know who Wade Anthony is, why he's running for Mayor Bicula, and why they should vote for you. So Wade, I'm gonna go ahead and kick it off right from there. Let us know, who is Wade Anthony? Wade Anthony is a outspoken person. Um, I stand on my principles. And um, I've always been political, always very opinionated. And um, I'm an honest man. And um, I, I work in trust. In fact, my high school ring says truth. Because in high school, I was the editor of my high school newspaper. And um, one of the things about my, my high school, my early life in high school in, in the Bronx, I actually grew up in the Bronx. I was born in the Caribbean, but I was raised in the United States. I was, I'm here from since I was 15 years old. Today I'm 59. Um, in the Bronx, the high school that I went to, it was a very tough high school, very rough in a city high school. In fact, people told my mom that I was gonna go to jail going to that high school. The high school was Taylor Roosevelt High School. And um, I went to high school and just my character and how I was raised, I stayed on the straight and narrow. In high school, I, I have, I'm a kind of person who follow my own mind and um, nobody was gonna lead me astray. So you have about 5,000 students that were in Roosevelt High School in the Bronx. Mm. 80%, you had a few white students, and of the white students dropped out. 84% of black students dropped out, but 87, 89% of Hispanic students dropped out. 
But in that environment, Wade Anthony thrived. So can we just would, pause for a minute on that one, Wade? Because that's a startling thing just to to digest. You, you your background, you are you come from the Caribbean, but your your family immigrated to New York. You're in high school in the Bronx in a school of five thousand students, and you just said that. Over 80% of the students, I really don't care your ethnicity, over 80% dropped out? Correct. 80, over 80% dropped out. And um, I chose to stay on the straight and narrow. Um, I, I, did, I didn't follow the crowd. I joined the high school newspaper. By the time I graduated, I was the editor-in-chief. Editor I was a member of the Model Congress. That's a debating club. And um, I was also part of the Caribbean Students' Union. And I helped with the, the yearbook, part of the student leadership team. And I also volunteered for the deans. In fact, when I left high school, the Board of Education gave me a certificate in cooperation in government. So you can say for 40, I graduated in 1980. So this is um, for, for 41 years, I've had this background in government and it's validated by the New York City Board of Education. In fact, that's one of the certificates that I'm very proud of because in all of that environment with a lot of drugs and all that stuff, um, I never smoked weed. Um, in, in, in class, I would challenge my teachers and I got a kick out of challenging my teachers. And, <laughs> They said it was fun. It was fun to, to teach me because when I first went to Roosevelt, one of the things that I noticed, they had people who came to school just to disrupt the class and I was gonna have that. So I, I took over the class and engaged the teacher. And so the people who didn't want to learn, they had to stay quiet because I was gonna challenge the teacher and the teacher was gonna to respond to me and the, the few other students who wanted to um, engage in conversation. And um, prior to coming to the United States, I come from a very large extended family. Um, my mother, she's what her last name is Tung, T-O-N-G. That's one of the biggest clans on the southern part of the island. Mm -hmm. And my father, well, so I got my, my surname, Anthony. Also, that's a very big clan. And so for right now on WhatsApp, we have a chat with about 150 Anthony's. And wow. we call it the Anthony, we call it the Anthony Nation. So my background is that my mom was a, a maid all her life. And there's something about being a maid. When you work with rich people, you learn about, you learn certain things. One of the things she picked up from them was education, how education was important. And she instilled that into all of her children. My, um, my father was a fisherman by profession. He's deceased. My mom's still alive. She's a uh, knight. Early childhood life was in the Anglican church. We were a British colony, so you grew up with, um, I was an Anglican church member. And part of that reg regiment is to be in the Boy Scout. So I was a member of the first Antigua Boy Scout. And so I also came from a community that was very rich and a vibrant community. Um, we had steel bands, we had like three or four steel bands. We had soccer teams, we had cricket teams. Cricket is like a big sport down, it's almost like baseball. Yeah. And so you grew up in that environment where it's rich and the people 
who raised you. This was literally a village raising me. Because my father's friends, my neighbors, they're all childhood friends. They all grew up together. So you had this continu continuity in the neighborhood. And my mom, even though it's a small island, it's a 10 by 12 mile island. My um, family is from the south, southern part of the island. We, I grew up in the north side of the city. So I'd go back into my ancestral village. And my ancestral village is pretty much intact. It was very poor. And so my parents, they taught me the value of hard work. Um, they instilled education and, and honesty and integrity. All that stuff was instilled in me at an early age. And being in a Boy Scout, Boy Scout was my first organized, um, first organized um, structure to teach me discipline. And in fact, I was back in the island um, about two years ago. I thought my SM, which my scout master was dead, and somebody told me he wasn't. And I, I put a blog on Facebook that I want to find him. And somebody reached out and I, I found him. We took some pictures together. That was awesome seeing my SM again after all these years. Well, I think a very interesting thing to call out, and, and you know, it goes deep, right? Interestingly enough, I just recently had a conversation with a family member regarding the fact that, um, you know, the, the lost effectiveness or engagement of community in raising a child is something we really have to look back towards because even in these modern communities with these socioeconomic needs, we've become divided. And you know, just listening to your story, because you know, on Edge the Edges, we're about the stories. Your story is impactful. You talk about a family and a community that poured into you. It wasn't a one-to-one -one or two-to-one thing. It was more of a, what is it, 104 <laughs> to one thing. And, and that's important because that, that builds your character, that, that identifies who you are. And I was going to ask you how you made it through Roosevelt, but that became real clear to me because you had the background. You were a Boy yes. Scout. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, my mom was a, a no-nonsense mom, and so... My, my parents split and my mom brought us to the United States. That was me and my sister, my younger sister. My other siblings, they were older. But my mom is a no-nonsense mother. And so I couldn't take them. I knew I couldn't take them any noise to her. Meaning I couldn't get into trouble. I couldn't be calling her from any police station. I knew that. Right. And um, I'll give you a story. Like one night, I was out with some fellows from high school. I was about 17 years old. And they had, I don't know, it could have been almost like a, a 12 foot, um, a 12 inch um, screwdriver. And we were on the Grand, Grand Conk course in the Bronx. So I asked them, what are you gonna do with that screwdriver? And they said, they're gonna pop open the, the parking meters, take out the coins. And I knew I had to leave. And that was the yeah. end of me and that crew. I, I couldn't do that because my mom, I couldn't go home I couldn't call my mom from some police station. So, and that's, that, that's not who I am. You know, that's not who I am. So that's um, awesome. I, I, I stayed on, I stayed on the street and narrow. Just to and, drift uh, a little bit, just to drift a little bit, uh, Wade, let me, let me ask you, you know, cause it, it, and it's an interesting thing because peer pressure is huge. It's even more so in this Facebook era, but those were your, your friends, you know, some acquaintances, whatever. You had a strong foundation that told you, hey, look, I'm not getting ready to follow you with this screwdriver and take these coins. But as you recall and remember them, 
you know, what would you say drove them to want to commit crime? Why do they want to do well, that? Well, I think it's, it's, it's the neighborhood. When you grew up in a neighborhood where everybody doesn't have, and it's the norm, it's because my, my, I had a real struggle, you know, developing myself into a man in America. And in terms of my dad wasn't here, I would go back to the island occasionally, I would see him. But um, what I saw, and my dad is a strong character. He's a strong man. And that's one of the things, up until he died, I was very close to my father. Mm -hmm. My father had, he was the first person that had a significant impact on me. And I don't think a lot of these guys had that. Even though my parents were separated, the only, they always instilled, you got to respect the other parents. They never tried to put us against one parent against the other. And they always tell us, you have to look out for your siblings. If you have a penny and your sibling want that penny, you give it up. So that was something that was drilled into me over and over and over, me and my siblings. So that's what we do. And I think a lot of these, um, a lot of the people growing up in the Bronx, they don't have that sense of um, that, that solid foundation, what you, the expectation that your parents set in you. And then once you go outside the apartment building, because we live in apartment buildings, that is all you see. And as I got older, you know, started going to college, I remember coming off the train station, got all these drug dealers, they counted their money. And if you're, if you're a kid and you're growing up in the Bronx and people are just selling weed or they're selling drugs. So even in high school, people were smoking cigarettes and um, weed and all that stuff. And that's the norm. That is the norm. So hmm. people think that's all you can do. In fact, when I, got out of, when I got out of college and I started trying to find a job, it took me a while to find a job. So I started to substitute. And I remember this guy in the South Bronx. Uh, I think about him often because I, sometimes I wonder if he's dead or he's alive. And he would, I tell him that you know, got to get an education. And this guy said, and be like you. And I thought about him. I, I think about him all the time because I mean, I was struggling as a teacher, but I wasn't going to go hustle. You know, I was going to go take the, the, the easy road. And so I think a lot of kids in the Bronx and in other places in the city, you don't have the foundation, um, the kind of people that I was around. Like I tell you, I have a, I, a um, I can't say he's a friend. He's more like my brother. So I was telling this acquaintance recently about him, and she said that he, he's your dad. But I have my father, but one of my neighbors that I grew up with, if he was going to hell, he was okay with my parents because not even the devil would be able to do anything to me. And he was the best man at my, my, my wedding. He is the guy who taught me to ride a bicycle. He taught me to drive a car. And so when I came to the United States, he was here. So I, I was still around him and all his brothers. So the friends I associated, associated with in the week, those are like my neighborhood friends. But on the weekends, I would go by him. And so and all his brothers, these are guys, he was the last, and he's four years older than I am, but he has brothers that range probably like maybe 10, 15 years older than he is. And all these guys helped to raise him. His mom, she recently passed, she was 94. So bottom line, I came up from this, a very strong community. The people that I knew back in Ireland, we, you form communities, you, you, 
migrated to a place like New York, and you still maintain those communities. They just don't disappear. So I think that was that would help. And it I had like my pivotal. excuse me. It was clearly pivotal. It had a strong yeah. influence on your life. Yeah, my aunts, my my mother's sister, we call her Dada. She was, in fact, she was a storyteller. So she used to tell us stories where we came from and and and, and who we are. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so it, it's real clear to me. So, so your dad's back in Antigua, right? And no, my, my my bad, my dad's deceased. Now he's deceased. No, I mean back then when you were a kid. Yes, yes, yes. yes. So he, he's he's there, but. He's still reaching that hand all the way out to you up in the Bronx. And even though he was there, you felt his presence. He was a strong influence on your life. And then you had these other men that were influences on your life to set you on a straight and narrow path. Because the point I'm making here, Wade, and I I had, it was another conversation I was having with the, um, with let's say a, a local aspiring politician. Those of you who are engaging in this process, I'm, I'm often often find myself having to say, I hope when I interview you, I'm going to find that you're an aspiring statesman as opposed to a politician. Because we often know politicians have a negative connotation, but Correct. a lot of politicians just simply made it that way because they, they lack integrity. <laughs> they, they make bad decisions. They come from a background that no matter whether it's up or down, no, no matter what level on the socioeconomic ladder it may be, they get in office and they do the things that we don't need. But I, I always find myself, you know, positively moved by stories like yours that are clearly stating that this is my background, this is where I come from, and these are the values that I bring to the table. Because folks in the South Bronx and the neighborhoods all across this country, you know, it's like you said, you were a sub and the kids looking at you, and he's like, So what? I'm going to be like you. <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah. a square you know I'm not, yeah i'm not doing that i'm trying to get this paper i'm trying to work this corner often yeah. enough these criminal activities stem from a desire to want to eat you know they they just want to make a way and making a way comes with a lot of bravado uh, a lot of desire to be cool and mixed up in that is a need to be dominant in alpha male and in that you bring violence and that's where yeah. it all slides downhill but it's often because they, they don't have that community. They don't have that integral, integrity-filled, foundational background like you. So that it, I, I just want to thank you for sharing that story and you know, letting us know that that's, that's where you come from, that that's what right. you're bringing to the table. So tell us, you had that in the Bronx, but this ain't the Bronx down here. This is the South, <laughs> you know, it's Georgia, Georgia. And you're yes, running sir. from Abdicula. So tell us, how do you get into the metro Atlanta area, a mighty young man from the Bronx? How, how did that happen? Well, um, back in um, around the 80s, I heard, I, I, I never thought I'd be in Atlanta. You, you grow up, you read a lot of history about different places in America, and Atlanta is one of those places you read history and stuff. And um, I never really thought about moving to Atlanta before. And in the 80s, my friends started talking about, yeah, Atlanta is the place to be. And then by 93, it was like really picking up. Everybody moved to Atlanta. So one of my old college friends, she moved here in 96. And I promised her I would help her drive her car when she moved. So 96, just before the Olympics, around say maybe April of 96, I came down to Atlanta and I 
I fell in love with the city. I was like, wow, this is nice. This reminds me of Canada. It's nice and clean. It's not as dirty as New York. And I fell in love. And from that point, I had a bug to move. But I went back to New York and I got a job at, at um, a big bank, Citibank. And it's, I was like, oh, yeah, it doesn't make sense to leave money and go to someplace you don't have any money, you don't have a job. So my friend, she told me, you know, you could stay, you could stay by my place till you get yourself together. But I went back to New York. And then I met my wife, fell in love, and I brought her down here. She was like, oh, yeah, but all my family's in New York. So I stayed in New York again. Then what happened now, September 11th happened. And I was working near Ground Zero at 222 Broadway. So I was caught up in a mess. And as I was walking home, my your whole life, my whole life flashed in front of me. What happened? What if, you know, you don't start doing all these um, what if scenarios and you got to live today. As I was walking home, mad as hell. And I said, I'm going to go, we're going to go to Georgia. And um came down here, I start looking for a job. I would drive down from New York looking for a job. And then I decided, look, you gotta go cold turkey. You just gotta move. Mm-hmm. Because we always working at um Barclays Capital Markets. They I was working as a contractor, a business intelligence, and they cut my contract. You had a whole thing with Enron going on, the whole mess that was going on at the time. So I was out of work. My wife was about to have our last baby. And um, I said, we still need some place to live. And so July 4th of um, 2002, my baby was born in June. And July 4th, I drove down and you, know, you did an apartment thing over the phone, came down to Georgia, didn't have a job, um, just came in faith. And I prayed really hard. I'm not like super religious, but I was, I was brought up in Christianity. Mm-hmm. And when people tell me like, see you back in six months, see you back in a couple of months and stuff, I said, no, that's not gonna happen. And I was determined to come down here and do whatever job I had to do as long as it was legal. Um, took interviews for warehouse. I already had a college degree and stuff. And I, there was a, a very tiny ad I saw in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution for a, a um, a work program over in Norcross. It was sponsored by the Atlanta Regional Commission, ARC, about the 10th, right? So I went to this place and they had like um, printers, they had fax machines, they had everything you need to get a job. And they also provide you with information about Gwinnett Tech, uh, you know, how you get like government grants to go to school. But the main thing is that getting out of the apartment, so I rented an apartment, it was me in the apartment. I was sleeping on the floor. I had my wife and the kids were still up in New York. And um, I would go to this place every day, put on my clothes because it was like going to work. And while I was there, it, it you know, it brings you in the mindset of you, you, you need to find a job. And going out every day to this place was a, um, it's like going to work. And so when I was walking out the center one day, I got a phone call. I had a temp job in Aon, in Aon, Reinsur- Aon Reinsurance Company in Sewanee. They needed a database developer for like three weeks doing it Microsoft Access. And I was like, man, should I take this job? My New York unemployment 
it was like four hundred and five dollars, and George is like two hundred and something dollars. And if I stay on long enough on the job and I get laid off, I'm gonna to have to go down to two hundred. So I said, you know what? I'm gonna take the job. So I did it for three weeks, and um, I did a great job. So that opened up an opportunity for me with the agency for Bell South slash now it's back to AT and T. And the agency called me up and said, you know, we got this interview for you. It was like the, the Tuesday after Labor Day in 2002. And um, I got myself ready. I had my shoes, my clothes. You got to do all your preparation, you know, because the seven Ps, I don't know if you know the seven Ps. Prior proper preparation prevents piss poor performance. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So I had my shoes cleaned my my tie my everything ready my portfolio i even drove downtown because i was fresh in the city right drove downtown there's a parking lot um can't remember the name of the hotel but it's right across the street from the fox theater and that's where i excuse me it's what george and terrace that's where you were yes george and terrace that's right (laughs) that's right george and terrace so i parked in the parking lot when i came for my interview and I had my portfolio with samples of my work so I could help to, to, to dominate the conversation and to show the, the interviewer what I'm capable of. And I showed him my portfolio slipping to stuff. There was one piece of code I worked at American Express Bank that had a piece of code, in, initially had probably like a thousand or two thousand lines. And I, I broke it down to like maybe like 30 lines, right? So I showed him that I could do the same thing, very efficient, so, et cetera. And everything he asked me, I said, yes, 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 I could do it. And when I was driving home, the agency called me and said, if you want the job, the job is yours. <laughs> you know, and um, I went, I went into Bell South. There was a guy here, here, um, Glenn Walker. And he asked me, how long are you here for? And I said, six months. And when six months came, he said, how long are you here for? <laughs> and we started laughing because I, I ended up staying there for five years. Wow. And it, in the process of, I handled multi-million dollar projects that I was responsible for. Um, you know, I work directly, in, I work in network. You know, for network, I will also, one of the things that I'm really proud of at Bell South I volunteered, I love to volunteer, right? So I volunteered for um, Junior Achievement. Because one day I went home, I never heard about Junior Achievement. And I saw my girls, they were like really competitive about school. And Junior Achievement was in the school, they were all excited and stuff. And I'm like, okay. So when Junior Achievement came to Bell South, they needed volunteers. I was one of the first guys who volunteered. Awesome. And then the management made me in charge and they gave me a coach here, which I didn't expect. I expect they would like need a guy to help them lug around some boxes and stuff like that, do whatever. But they put me in charge. And so they asked me, what do you, what do you need? And we were told you can't, you may use a, a copy machine, but you're not, you don't have a budget. You don't have a budget, right? And you have to raise money. Mm. And I said, okay, so, I called around, I started making phone calls, cold calls, and I got Ear Jamaica 
and uh, I called up the Jamaican uh, consulate and because first, you know, I called him up and they gave me a, a all-inclusive paid trip to Jamaica, hooked me up with a hotel. And um, so you know, the, the consulate hooked me up with Air Jamaica and a hotel. And so I got a package. And so my team, I learned a lot about fundraising in, in that instance because we made packages. So the Bell South was orphaned by, by, by the time it was at and they, they had a Jeep and we got the, the package to go to Jamaica for I think like almost like three or four days. And so we bundled the packages. We had like a 50-50, we had different things going on. So you get the Jeep package or you could get the, the, um, the travel package. And so you could just donate $50 and then you would give you a certificate so then you wouldn't get any other people come to your desk asking you for money. <laughs> and so that was very effective. So we raised, we, our group, we raised $7,000 and um, within the, um, the six weeks period. That's awesome. And um, well, the company donated match. So in total, the company itself raised $540,000 and the company matched it. 100%. So joint achievement got over a million dollars. That is outrageous. Wow. Wait, that yeah. is awesome. And then just to plug, I've been volunteering with Junior Achievement for years myself. Outstanding right. organization. Exactly. I taught the classes at the local elementary school, but I never raised upwards of seven thousand <laughs> million dollars. That, yeah. that is an outstanding achievement. And I know that the organization was very, very happy to receive yes, that yes, from yes, and you guys. And then I wanted to add something else too. I come from an IT background, just like you. Interestingly enough, common ground, always good to find yeah, common ground yeah. with people that I speak to. But you did something on that interview that I've been coaching and mentoring for uh, quite some time. I even put it in some of the books that I've written. When you go to the interview and you're prepared and we talked about how piss poor performance can definitely lead to failure if you're not leveled up, right? You went in yeah. there leveled up. And brought a portfolio. I did the same thing for my jobs. And so yeah. it always amazed me how I'd have to coach and teach folks that, you know, bring what's best of you in order to secure the gig. Showcase your talent because, and I remember saying this to one of the, my first mentees, and it worked out for him the way it worked out for you. I said, if you showcase, if you showcase well, because I can tell you as a hiring manager, I'd, I'd be the same way. That if I see that you can do the work as opposed to all of the neat stuff that you wrote on the resume, but you can do it and you've got proof, you might have a job on the spot. Yeah. And that clearly happened to you. And that talks about your preparation and your effectiveness, your ability to get the job done. Well, let me tell you, the people I've been around, you know, I've been around all sorts of people, but there's one young man who, He's younger than I am, and he has mentored me because you learn from a lot of different people. Age doesn't matter. This guy, his, ment his mentor was a, a former, was a Vietnam veteran. And so he was one of the first, he was in that generation where they got the full dose of IT in high school. Wow. This guy, when I met him back in 90, 97, 98, he was already a Microsoft certified solution developer when nobody had certification, he was a certified novel engineer 
and he was um, a certified, um, he had a third certification, I can't think of it right now, but he had a third certification for the, the development, database development, and he is driven. Today, he's the head of um, security for New York, New York City. Wow. So, um, yeah, so he is still in my life, very driven. And so I remember like when he's the guy who's really taught me SQL Server. And, you know, the way he pushed the stuff in your head is, and you think like your head was about to pop, <laughs> but I had about, you know, he was, he's this tough guy. And so that's the kind of preparation I come with, you know? And let's, no let's go ahead and, and switch it from that point then, because that's a good turning point. That's the kind of preparation you bring. So we know about Wade Anthony and his background, the community, family, all of the assets that you're bringing to the table. All of a sudden, down here, down in the South, you made this your home. You work for Bell South. Who remembers Bell South? AT&T now. <laughs> <laughs> but you made this your home, and you want to give to the community and commit to making it the kind of place where we would all want to live and thrive. And you've elected to try to do that as mayor. So first, tell us, how did you make the Cule your home? And then what made you decide to run? Um, the cooler, I came to Georgia and, um, I was doing, I had a friend who's my realtor and she's the one who really picked, I trust her. You know, we used to be on the same learning team and she's the one who picked the cooler. And I said, okay, fine, whatever, you know, you want to, whatever you decide. What's your, and it's, it's a good deal. I mean, I, I wouldn't go public with it. I got a really great deal in my house. I have a nice house in the cooler, beautiful house in the cooler great subdivision, um, nice people, nice neighbors. So, um, but to, to run for mayor, I've always been political. I come from a very political background. Um, I didn't tell you about my, my high school teacher back when I was secondary school teacher back in Antigua was a guy, he's like really left-wing radical newspaper. His name was Tim Hector and um, he pretty much had an influence on just about everybody in the island because he was always challenging the government. He'd been arrested about seven times. They burned down his newspaper, different kind of things like that. Mm. So I've always been political. And I see things in the cooler. It's, it's a beautiful city. You know, I've never seen a homeless person in the cooler. But one of the reasons that attracted me to cooler was my, the, 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 the housing stock and the, the lifestyle, you know, it's a, it's a, my neighbors, we all live good together. But, um, so one of the things my campaign is, is, is talking about is the stabilizing property tax. I know that's not a function of, of the, um, the mayor and the mayor doesn't by himself, doesn't have control of property taxes. That's a county function. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to have, uh, need to have a conversation about property taxes. Because in my situation, I bought my house um, 2016, the start of 2016. The previous owner, that when we look at the records, the taxes was $2,800 a year. Today, and then I, for me, then it jumped to when I, the first year in 2016, the first I paid was um, $3,700. Today, my tax bill is $5,000. My tax bill has increased 56% in a few years. 
that is not sustainable. You can't be taxing and spending and putting that pressure on homeowners, on the residents of the city. It is unconscionable. And so as mayor, I'd work with the, the, the tax commissioners to develop a methodology that is fair for taxpayers. I called up the tax commissioner office and um, the lady I spoke with, she said, well, you know, the property value has gone up. Yes, the property value has gone up. That's what we want. But you just can't come into my pockets and be taking all my money because even in the job, people just want to limit you to 3% wages. People have a problem paying people $15 an hour. So if you don't want, I mean, in IT, you make more than that. But my job, they, they're not giving me more than 15, uh, a 3% raise. And so whatever raise I, I, I got, you're taking it. You're, you're cutting into my disposable income. And so what I did, she said, well, you know, the property tax, the, the house value, said, well, I'm not selling my house. So why are you telling me about this? The, the, the value of the house gone up. How can you justify my tax move from say 2,800 to over $5,000? And she said, well, you can write an appeal. So I appealed and I, I when the, in the appeal script, I said, you guys are wicked. Where do you find it in this COVID times for people to have that kind of money? And I got back a response from, from the county pretty quickly, about maybe a day or two days later, and they made me an offer. The land value would stay the same, and the, the, the house value, they took some off the top. And they said, how about you stay at this, at this rate for three years, including this year? And I said, I could live with that. So we need to... Is the I did it for myself, but a lot of other people they just accept it. Mm. Well, that's what it is. That's what it is. And then what you're doing to families, you're putting a strain on families because artificially adjusting people's property tax to this to the to a millage rate, or even not the um, homestead increase the homestead exemption. You know, you're putting an undue burden on homeowners. We want people to go out to dinner. They want to have, they're raising young children. You know, when I was here, I came down here. I had my girls, they were young. There were times when I had to go to the, the, the thrift store to buy them toys or tell them, you know, daddy can't buy any toys right now or this Christmas because we, we just can't, right? And so you're putting undue pressure on families. So that's one of the things that got me to um, run for mayor. I want to be fair to my neighbors. And the other thing that the, um, the current city council has voted unanimously, they want to bring a 500 unit apartment complex near my home on Harbin's Road. It's right next to 316. Mm -hmm. on Harbin's Road. It's already congested. There's a lot of traffic. They are going to rezone, or they already voted unanimously, including my opponent, to rezone land right next to people's beautiful homes to put 
a 500 unit apartment complex in a city that has 6,000 people. The reason why we're in the cooler, we don't want the hustle and bustle of a big city. We like the, the small town feel, neighborly. We like to see the kids out in this, we, in our subdivision, the young children, they're outside with their, their bicycles, being children. I came out of my driveway um, a few weeks ago and there was a toy that came down the hill. That's was right next to my driveway. He stayed out there a couple of days and then I took it. I knew where it came from. I didn't know which house. Took it up the street and put it um, on one of the sidewalks. And so my next door neighbor, he's from the Virgin Islands. The guy across the street from me, he's from Liberia. The guy next to him is from Mexico. Um, we have an international, the other guy, um, he's from uh, California. You know, we have a, a very nice mixed neighborhood with people of different backgrounds. And that's why we want to keep it. We don't want, I, my personal opinion, I came from John Jay College of Criminal Justice. I, when I first moved here, I lived in an apartment building. And I see what happens in apartment buildings. They start off being nice, and then you have the negative elements. One of the things that they're selling with this apartment complex is that they're selling it to young professionals. Well, 74% of the house of the, the homes in the cooler are owned. A young professional, why not encourage young professionals to, to own homes? We want home ownership. We want people to invest in the community, not to have a 500 colossal um, apartment complex where you have transient people, but people have no connection to the community. So that's what I'm passionate. And I'm just, I've been talking to my neighbors and I, the, the name of the project is called Inland Paths. And when I mentioned Inland Paths and I said, have you ever heard about Inland Paths? They'll say no. Of course. Then, I tell, then I'll tell them what it is and where it's going to be. And immediately they, 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 they get really angry. Yeah. And so that is what I'm, I'm campaigning against. I'm campaigning against in, Inland Pass. The development project is too large of a project to bring into, into the cooler. Um, we think that there's going to be crime. Um, a lot, when we get our packages, we sit on the steps. I've seen so many videos of people um, driving through neighborhoods like I was scooping up people's packages because they can. Um, it's easier. I was reading this document the other day. It's easier for a person to break into a home than an apartment complex because a home has so many different points of entry. Right. You know, and... Um, People, the, the, you know, people who are involved in crime, they figure out ways to how they're going to um, scout neighborhoods. You know, I remember, this is Atlanta now, um, the killer. But I remember when I was back in New York, I was home one day and I saw this guy. He was so obvious case in the neighborhood. <laughs> and I called NYPD. But by the time they came, he already left the neighborhood. But you could tell he was case in the neighborhood. And people, they make it their job. That's what they do. You know, I, I, again, like again, this the, the 
the criminal justice background training that I have, and from what I've seen in my lifetime, crime is a matter of opportunity, and you're gonna have transient people um, in the neighborhood. A lot of times they don't follow rules, they don't have the, the commitment. When I lived in the apartment complex when I first moved here, the apartment complex was, was doing some repairs and they put a dumpster beneath my window. Well, people stopped putting garbage in that dumpster. They moved the dumpster across from the building because I complained about the smell. Next thing you know, they started to put dumps, the garbage back in the dumpster again. That dumpster was there to carry away wood or whatever um, material they had on the, on the apartment complex. Then the project was done and the dumpster was gone. So what they did, they continued to put the dumpster, the, the garbage in, in the parking lot. Oh, and I had, to com- I had to complain to the manager of the, the property. And he said, well, I'm not picking up anybody's garbage. So I went one day and I took some photographs and I got some maggots and stuff in the photograph and I sent it to Gwinnett County. And the next day the county was on them. So they had to clean it up. And I've seen in the apartment complex, people, they'll put the garbage on their cars. It falls off. They don't stop to pick it up. It's just, um, it's consistently where people break rules. And we want to have, we want to continue, have our community that's flourishing, that's safe. And the other, time, the other thing is like the people's choice. I'll, I'll be taking surveys from the community to see what people are feeling, what, what, are, what are the concerns of the people from the Kula? Uh, like I said, I've never seen a homeless person in the Kula. Uh, the poverty rate here is um, around 5%. And um, so we need to know exactly what's going on. I'm not saying that we don't care about people, but we wanna know what are the issues because on the surface, everything seems like it's good. And it's a beautiful city. Definitely. It's a nice city, yeah. you know? But um, let me let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, Wade. So, because I'm I'm sussing out two critical factors, right? Uh, property taxes and um, zoning for new construction, particularly construction for um, apartment complexes as residential. But um, so the city council supports these activities. I think one of the things we definitely want to make sure we're doing, and that's part of why we do these uh, municipal episodes on Edge the Edges is you find the citizenry simply doesn't know where to go or who to talk to or keep themselves aware of the functionalities of either the municipality or the unincorporated space in which they live. And it's something that I personally feel is, you know, as a community activist, I'm thoroughly vested in, you know, trying to make sure we uplift our citizens so that they know, you know, you've got, we've got an election coming up for you. I don't know what the historical uh, rate has been around voting in municipal elections, but, you know, typically they're just not that high and folks well, don't know. They need to know, they need to get engaged. Right, and so that's why I've gotten, I've gotten in this race. So Democratic Party was feeling candidates and I got into this late, but I can come up to speed because, you know, working in IT, you got issues all the time and you just got to fix them. And I'm Mr. Fix-It, right? So a lot of the citizens are, Many citizens, they don't know, or people are just so busy. They're busy because they have to take care of their kids. They got all these um, 
tax, high taxes that you're putting on them. So you have to make ends meet. And people may be struggling, right? Um, so I got involved because I want to address these issues. My website should be coming out soon. I'll be educating people about the issues. And um, many, the other thing too, we talk about freedom and constitutional rights. Too many people are scared. Too many people are scared to speak up. Like I was telling my coworker, yeah, I'm gonna go back to my, my tax commissioner and tell him the taxes are too high. He said, no, you can't do this because they're gonna to start to, um, to, to, to scrutinize you. I said, no, they can't. Oh my God, okay. You know, so people, people get scared and people are intimidated. Yeah. People don't wanna be involved. They just kind of keep their heads down. Don't, don't, out, they will on the side or, you know, they don't get in, most people don't get involved. And so it's up to people like me, who's been doing it all my life, to get involved and to educate people about the issues in the community or who they go to, who you call. One of my, um, my campaign manager, she told me about a great class. And she said, wait, you should take this class. It's called Greenland County 101. It has a lot of information. It, it tells you, it explains to you why they're building this road, um, where your tax dollars are coming from. She says it's a class that every citizen of Gwinnett County should take. And yeah. I'm gonna register for that class or take that class. So I'm in the know of where to go and then who to, who to call. Well, I will gladly plug Gwinnett Academy. I am a member. Um, Wade Anthony, I can tell you right now that it is something you should definitely matriculate through. And it will definitely give you a, a proper perspective and an understanding of, you know, county operations. You'll get some insight into to the uh, cities of Gwinnett and the municipality operations as well. You know, uh, it's funny that we're talking about the property tax thing, right? You know, it's different. It's, it's uh, you've got city taxes if you happen to stay in a city, but then you've got the county taxes on top of it. And you've got the county appraiser who actually isn't the person that sends you your tax bill. That's a different department. But that appraiser actually goes through the process of doing it from a systemic standpoint based on statistics, right? And mm -hmm. they really don't have any control over that market value piece. Because to, to your point, none of us, I mean, like when I look at my taxes over the years, I'm like, well, wait a minute. You know, I, 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 I know I live in a beautiful home, but it ain't, this ain't a mansion, right? You know, yeah. but I do under, because it's funny, I, what you did, I did for my mom's home. And she stays on the other side of the ATL. Um, you can engage the the county or the city or whichever authority to try and put a um, a halt on increases. And there are some things that they can do to kind of ease that pressure. But the market driven factors on that part of the taxes is, is is very very difficult to overcome because you know I'm not going to say it on uh, on the podcast, but I stay in a substantially high value home, right? You know. I sell this thing. I'm coming up on loot, but it's yeah, not how I got into it, right? Yeah, but, but there are all these other pieces, these services, and and things that get added by the city or by the county, and it, it they, you know, they should be scrutinized. As a citizen, we should ask about them, right, to see if that's yeah. what we want our money to be doing. You see, but um, so the methodology of just using the market, right, to determine what the rate is. But on the other side of the equation, you have families and you're punishing people because a person bought a home 
we are punishing and squeezing the middle class. The middle class is already getting squeezed from federal, state, and now the, the city they live in, the, the local municipality, and it's wrong. It doesn't mean because the methodology is to use the market, the market um, value. You can do, they, they can do other things to make adjustments. You know, like I'm a SQL developer. And what, one of the things we do when we write code, you can have a case statement. You have a, a case statement that look at different conditions. You, you just can't, not because this is the way it was. We're gonna, are we gonna always do this? If that's the case it was, Christopher would have never crossed the Atlantic Ocean because everybody was scared. Thomas Edison would have never created the, um, the light bulb because everybody thought it, was, it wasn't possible. The guys who ran the first, now today, we have wireless communication. If the guys didn't run, when they ran the first set of transatlantic cables, the ship sank, you know? You just can't give up. So they, not because it was, that's the way it was. We're gonna always do that. I mean, you think about the Wang computer or WordPerfect back in, in the early, in, in, the, um, in the late- Oh, wow, WordPerfect. <laughs> yeah, you had, the hard-coded keys. So you got to go shift F8 to do one function and, and F7 and all these high commands. I mean, what Apple did, they gave people ease of use, right? Now we, you got to change the mindset. Not because it, that's the way it was. It, mean, it means that you have to continue with that old way of thinking. And so Apple is a, a trillion dollar company. First company, they got tr trillion dollar valuation. They had to, they, they broke all the rules, right? And that's what, that's what we're talking about. Awesome. You gotta like find new ways to do, to do things. And it's a matter of uh, innovation. You gotta keep ways of innovating. And just don't, the, the sole way of raising money is not to put a burden on the, on the, on the homeowners. I mean, I work in the, um, in Transaction Alley. In, in, in Georgia, and that's our baby. They talk about Silicon Valley. We have transaction, transaction alley. When you swipe or you pay a line, more than likely your transaction is passing through Georgia. We're doing over $3 trillion a year, right? They, the government, um, I think it was um, Governor Deal, and um, they brought the movie. They did, you got really creative, and brought the movie industry to Atlanta. So we, to, to Georgia, and now we get like about $5 billion of revenue we weren't seeing before, right? And um, by using the assets of the state. So you can be creative. You gotta go back to the drawing board. And if you need to get more revenue, you gotta find creative ways to get additional revenue streams. Just don't keep, you know, twisting that same old cloth. You've squeezed out all the water. It's gonna, it's gonna dry up. You know, once people can't afford these taxes, a guy bought his house and he wants to, to stay in the, in the community for like 30 years and watch his kids grow up, the taxes are going to run him out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I love that response, Wade. So before we close out here, I want to make sure we get that final message to the listeners. What is it about Wade Anthony that you want these folks to know? I mean, when it comes time to vote, what should they be thinking of when they hit the polls? Well, they should think about Wade Anthony because Wade Anthony will tell them 
honestly what he thinks. And we at Anthony has the people's interest. Because I have the people's interest, that is why I'm running. That is why we at Anthony is running. We at Anthony is running because he wants to keep your property taxes low. He wants to stabilize your property taxes. And he doesn't want high traffic. He doesn't want um, a lot of transient people coming into the community. Secular is a small city with about 6,500 people. Uh, 75 percent of the people own their homes. We want people to continue to be homeowners. We don't want to have an influx of renters. The historic, the, the, the trend, the historical trend is that people who are not invested in the community, like renters, they don't have that interest that a homeowner has. And you allow, start allowing these huge property value, huge apartments to come into the community, more than likely your property value is gonna go down. Nobody wants that. We want to maintain our property value. And so if we have some children, we need to pull some equity to help them out, go to college or whatever. That is what we stands for. I stand for the truth. Like in my high school ring, it says truth. That's been like over 40 years since I graduated from high school. That's what's in my high school ring. So as the song said, 1979, ain't no stopping us. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to win. We're going to win. And we're going to win. We are in this to win. Right? No retreat, no surrender. Winning is the only option. Well, all right. Wade Anthony, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for sharing your perspective, your story, your truth on Edge the Edges. We really appreciate Thank it. You. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Brown. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Ain't no stopping us. No retreat, no surrender. Wade Anthony speaks straight and is running for this office to preserve what he believes is best in Decula. We have to thank Wade for taking a moment from the campaign trail to share his powerful story with us. It is without question a worthy one. And of course, we have to thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it, so please like and subscribe. Tell your family, tell your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Edge the Edges. And don't forget to visit our website at edgetheedges.com. Check us out, join the movement, express your commitment to the cause. Cause for a better America, a better world. But we all can stand together at the mountaintop. Be good to yourselves and each other. We'll see you next time.